This week's episode of the Lone Star Outdoors show proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge and Fast Steel 2.0. Back when uh, I first got into serious waterfowling in college, Kent Cartridge made the most affordable premium load on the market. They are still doing the exact same thing with Fast Steel 2.0. It's the evolution of the OG of premium waterfowl loads and Fast Steel. Uh, but if you want a hard-hitting waterfowl load that doesn't leave you chasing cripples but doesn't hurt the pocketbook at the same time, check out Kent's Fast Steel 2.0, available in all of your favorite shot sizes. It's widely available at Cabela's, Bass Pro, Shields, you name it. And uh, you can find their entire dealer list at kentcartridge.com. Now, darling, I am not afraid to not afraid to love you I am not afraid And sugar Honey pie Ain't gonna hurt you Or let you down Oh, I know I got to be strong. Good morning, good morning, good morning Cable Smith, oh, welcoming each and every one of you into episode 595 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Mossberg Firearms as well. Oh, it is great to be back. I returned from the Elk Woods, the mountains of northern New Mexico. And although only Heartbreak returned to Texas with me instead of a cooler full of delicious elk, Eh, that's the way it goes sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll probably have my friend Beaver, who was uh, spent the week calling for me, probably have him on in the next week or two to recap what almost was the biggest bull of my life. But it's hard to complain about spending a week chasing bugles, and there were lots of them, more than I've ever heard before, uh, on public land in New Mexico anyway. So uh, we'll discuss that another time. Today, however, I've got a great guest lined up for us, so you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's Stanley Thermos, the green one he passed down to you years ago. If it's like mine, it's still got mud caked on it from last duck season. Uh, but Michael R. Shea, longtime outdoor writer, a friend of the show, and actually, uh, now the head of Free Range American, the outdoor arm of Black Rifle Coffee, uh, he'll be here. And we'll discuss his new book, Rim Fire Revolution, A Complete Guide to Modern 22 Rifles. I didn't even know this was really a thing, guys, uh, until about four or five months ago when Michael said he was going to send me a copy of the book. And then I had a personal experience at uh, Vortex headquarters where I was like, wow, this is, a, this is a big deal, these modern precision 22s. And so we'll obviously discuss this trend and, uh, and also take a look back at the history of center fire rifles. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Actually, the West was one with a uh, center fire rifle. I think it was the Henry 44. Um, so lots of cool stuff on that front. And then Michael just got back from Colorado on a DIY elk hunt of his own, archery elk hunt. Um, he found success, however, but it was a long time coming, <laughs> including trips to the hospitals, deaths in the family where he had to turn around and head back to New York from Colorado. 
really a fascinating journey that he's had in terms of harvesting his first archery elk. Uh, so a, a story that I read about on social media, one that uh, he's going to share with us today. Uh, so it should be a great conversation with Michael. I'm excited about it. Hope you are as well. Um, let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a year membership, elite membership, that's all 50 states, to On X Hunt. That's the entire North American, well, not Canada, the entire United States mapped out for you. Private public land, trails, logging roads, you name it. Anything that you could use to your advantage in navigating private or public land, Onyx has it. And you'll get a free membership. Just email the word, well, you could win. There's going to only be one winner, but it could be you. And it's the elite membership, all 50 states. Just email the word hunt. That's hunt to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you are entered to win. I think this value is like, I think it's almost 200 bucks for the uh, 12 month membership from Onyx. So uh, throw your hat in the ring. You could win. Let's take a quick break. Up next, it's the Rimfire Revolution with writer Michael Arche, our good friend, right here on SCI's on Star Outdoor Show. Underneath the Louisiana moon. Don't mind the strain of a hurricane They come around every June The high black water A devil's daughter She's hot, she's cold, and she's me Hey, hey, everybody. Cable here for Go Wild. If you're like me, trust me, these clowns have been censoring me for a long time. But if you're like me and you can't seem to make heads nor tails of what the hell's going on on traditional social media platforms like, you know, the one that Zuckerberg owns. Well, let me tell you about Go Wild. It's a place where like-minded folks are sharing ideas, hunting tips, fishing tips, recipes, all that great outdoor content that you and I both love. You can find it on Go Wild. And here's an even better thing that they're doing right now. They've got an online store. And if you sign up, that's right. It's it's a free account. That's, that's all you have to do is just go to a download Go Wild. You sign up, create your account there. You'll get a free $10 gift card to spend on Go Wild's outdoor gear store. Brands like Garmin, Vortex, Irish Setter Boots, Treason, North Mountain Gear, and many, many others. They're all right there in the Go Wild store. And you can use that $10 credit on anything you want. It's that easy. Sign up at downloadgowild.com. Take advantage of your $10 reward gift card. And uh, and you and you build points too. Um, that's another thing. It's a, a rewards program. So the more you spend, the more points you get. You can find it all at downloadgowild.com. And I'll see you over there. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. Hey, folks. Hey guys, Cable here, and if there's one service, one company that I rely on heavily when planning my next backcountry hunt, it's Onyx Hunt. They have, for a long time, set the gold standard when it comes to giving me the information I need 
to basically predict where I'm going to find animals. And if you can hone in on where the animals are going to be, you're going to be more successful. Onyx uses their own topo maps, plus, I mean, geographical features like watering holes or a meadow system that works its way down a mountainside where you know those elk are going to be feeding and muleys in the morning and evenings. Yeah, it'll show you that as well. Uh, plus, of course, private property boundaries. Where does the National Forest end? Where does Rancher Joe's property start? Yeah, it's going to show you that as well. So whether you're planning a backcountry hunt or just picking ambush points to hang your tree stands on your whitetail property, Onyx shows it all to you. They've got different layers you can apply to a uh, specific grid or a piece of property. It's really rad. And here's the cool thing. You'll save 20% when you order your Onyx subscription by using my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at onxmaps.com. This is Aaron Lewis, and thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. He handed it to me on the day I turned 13 With a half-shot box of shells and a kit to keep it clean Keep a picture in the case of that sweet old man, me. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by the good folks over at Mossberg Firearms. It's great to be here talking outdoors with you. We've got a special guest in the form of Michael R. Shea lined up to join us momentarily. Uh, before we do that, though, this segment of the presentation... Proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics and the new Sun Slayer hoodie. It's, uh, it's light. It's airy. When I was fishing the other day, it was, uh, believe it or not, it was still 95 degrees in Texas up until about the middle of this week. Had on that Sun Slayer. Didn't feel like I even had a shirt on. Yet, I did. A hoodie. And it's protecting me from UV rays while feeling like I don't even have a shirt on. It's awesome. It's the Sun Slayer. You can find it and Vortex's entire lineup of apparel at vortexoptics.com and you'll get 20% off all apparel when you use that promo code LONESTAR20 at checkout. With that being said, let's bring him on right now. It's been a minute, but always great to check in with one of my favorite writers, Michael R. Shea. Thanks for being here, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm uh, excited to be here. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So are you at home in New York? I am. Yeah. I'm in upstate New York. I'm actually like hiding out in my gym, as you can kind of see. We have, mm -hmm. uh, we have contractors here working at the house and they're um, in the office right now. So, but yeah, man, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the Finger Lakes. So if, uh, if you know, like Syracuse, I'm about two hours, hour and a half kind of Southwest of Syracuse. Okay. Yeah. And I, we were talking off there, and I think the last time you were on, we talked about setting up a whitetail property. You guys had just bought uh, your own track there. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was trying to remember what it was. I mean, I knew we had talked, but then it all came back to me when you were talking about all – I remember all the work, and I mean, that was a huge project. Uh, yeah. How many acres did you guys buy? Uh, we have just about 40. Um, 40. And we got another 14 we're actually adding on um, this year. That's kind of, that deals in process. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was historically, you know, big hardwood forests. And then in like the turn of last century, kind of everything got cut down. It became 
you know, ag land. We got, I got all the history of the property. I won't bore you with it, but it was, it was pretty neat. It was like one of the first like black farmers in upstate New York got uh-huh. in these Shetland uh, cattle. And so it was like ranch land. Um, and then in the 50s, 60s, they kind of reforested it. So we had like, so where I am now, it looks like a lot of timber, but it's not really high quality timber because it's all like spruce pines and white pines and hemlocks and things. They planted pulp in the, in the, the 50s and the 60s. Um, so I came in and working with um, the Doherty's, Craig and Neil Doherty, who are up in this part of the world, who do um, a lot of whitetail work. We sort of tried to re-engineer and reimagine the place and, and do some cutting and some dozer work and put in food plots and try to get it all kind of spun up for, you know, for deer killing. And yeah. uh, it's been good. It's been, it's been fun. It's been an eye opener for sure. And have the deer responded to the, the management stuff, improvements that you guys have put in place? Yeah, I think so. Um, we got, we've, we will have the place uh, six years in, um, I guess in September will be six years. And last year, um, my, one of, uh, one of the guys I work with here at Black Rifle Coffee, um, he had a shot at a monster and we got a trail camera picture of like the first, like, you know, five and a half year old deer, like real mature. And we're right on state land and like the culture up here in New York, sadly, I will say is like, if it's brown, it's down. Uh-huh. Guys just want to kill the bucks. And so like a guy will pass a doe and kill a spike and be happy they got a buck. You know, it's- hey, that's so crazy to me, man. And, and I know that that, that exists because uh, this guy I've hunted with, he owns a ranch in central Texas. He's from Pennsylvania originally. And yeah. I think after texas like pennsylvania is in the top three for number of deer killed annually uh, by state um pennsylvania has more deer hunters than anywhere in the country including texas more than texas well wow. but texas. uh well what, what he said was um yeah you come back to camp and it's like <laughs> or go or go to work and you're you know back at the office cooler on monday and he's like did you get a buck your buddy like i didn't get a buck did you get a buck doesn't matter if it's a spike yeah, you know, it's like it could be a year and a half year old deer. It could still have milk on its lips, but if it had a spike, I got a buck. That's all that matters. Yeah, uh, that is not. Uh, luckily, fortunately, that's not the mentality in Texas anymore. Yeah, and and Pennsylvania, I think, has largely changed as well. Because about God, I want to say ten years ago, it may have even been twenty. They put a point restriction in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it was super controversial. The guy who um, proposed it, the biologist, was going to public meetings in bulletproof vests because mm. it was so contentious that they would put uh, antler restrictions. Since then, flash forward, whatever it's been, the 10 or 20 years, and like Pennsylvania, they're killing giants. And like that culture has really changed. And like I see it 45 minutes south of me where guys are thinking about age class and property management and like all the, mm-hmm. all the stuff like whitetail fanatics kind of everywhere are doing. Um, but you go like an hour North, 45 minutes North to like where I live and you're in New York and <clears throat> there's no system for what you can shoot. A buck tag's a buck tag. There's lots of doe tags available and the culture is different. And it's like, 
if it's brown, it's down. I tell I tell the story and I'll quit I'll quit boring you with this. But like when I first moved here, one of my neighbors deer hunts. It's a hunt camp. So I went over there and kind of told them a little bit about what I was going to do. And I tried to be like real diplomatic and sort of like ease into the QDMA stuff. <clears throat> and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm an old timer. Like, I don't believe in shooting the does and I only wait for the good bucks. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, that's interesting. At least he's waiting for the good bucks, you know? Right. And uh, that. And I was then he shows day. you a spike the first day of the season. It was literally <laughs> that. Yeah, that's that is that is like you you called it. Like I'm in my stand and I hear boom, 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 and he's just like dumped the gun. And I texted him, but I was like, oh, I got a buck, you know. I was like, oh, I'll come over and help you get it out. Said, no, 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 I got it, I got it. So the end of the day, I went over there, and uh, he said in the text message it was a six point, and um, what it was was a spike with little bumps. Like mm. where it was, it was literally like a one and a half year old deer. That's a six point though. It's yeah. got like, like the bumps where the points would form. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is, this is like different. Cause up until I moved here and started doing this, like I was traveling mainly to hunt and running around with guys who took it, you know, I don't want to say more seriously, but definitely we're on the management practices end of the spectrum. So then to get dumped into this, it was uh, just, it was an eye opener, man. So, so I guess considering all that, the fact that we've got a couple bruisers on camera, we've seen them on neighboring properties, like I'm calling it a success, but we have not, I've, I've killed a few good ones, like in my County and in my area, but not yet on this particular piece, Mm, Um, but it'll, I think it'll come, you know, we're seeing improvements. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, that's the dream. I think, I mean, everybody wants their own 40 acres, right? So you're living that. Um, let's talk about elk season and this, I didn't know you're passionate elk hunter. I just was looking at your, uh, your, uh, Instagram feed popped up and you had shot a cow. It was like, okay, great. You got a cow, but there was so much history behind that. Uh, so much blood, sweat, tears, like literally you thought you were going to die at one point trip to the hospital. Um, give us the uh, the Cliff Notes version of what, what and, and I'm sure it was a very emotional moment for you when you walked up on that cow. I know when I shot my first bull, uh, it was very surreal um, and, and, and a sense of validation that goes along with a true backcountry experience and, and finding success for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, um, for almost a decade, um, I've been trying to kill an elk, basically, and mm-hmm. First couple of years, I went uh, Colorado, DIY, public land, over-the-counter tags, like all the adjectives. Um, the first couple of years, I was driving my Tacoma from New York to Colorado. I always had like, I had like a bad luck streak and then I just didn't go. And I kept saying, oh, I need to go. It wasn't like I was after it every year for 10 years, but mm-hmm. with uh, some gaps between going, it's been about 10. Um and the first year that I went out there, um, I got real sick. I was up, I was, uh, this, this spot, um, I got a lot of history in. it was my, it was my, actually, let me rephrase that. That was the second year I got sick. The first year I went out there, I was nearby this spot and I got a message on my inreach that my grandfather had passed away. Mm. Um, and I was really, I was 
very close with him. Like he was a World War II vet. Um, I went to grad school uh, for writing and did my thesis on his ship and his kind of combat experience. Wow. Interviewed him, all his buddies. Like so, and, and a lot of that was happening towards the end of his life. So that project was kind of wrapping up. And then I went on this elk hunt and got that news. Um, so I literally drove across country for three days, spent two days in Colorado, then drove home and made it by a day. And, you know, we put him in the ground and I got his flag and, and all of that. So that was my first elk season. My second elk season, based on that little time I had in Colorado, I was like, I'm in this spot. I need to go to this one. Went to this new one. It's nine miles in. It's like straight up. It's, it was very aggressive. Um, Been there. Not to that spot, but the same, <laughs> the same thing. The same idea, right? Yeah. Like, we were talking about this before we started. Like there's this thinking like, you know, you got to go in high, you got to go in deep, you got to get away from hunters. But a lot of the, I, as I've learned, particularly this year, a lot of the real elk killing son of a guns, like work close to the road. Like they start on their easy spots, you know, right. and, and just get in the habitat where there are elk and then pattern the other hunters and make it happen. You don't need to go 10, nine, nine, 10, eight miles in to, to kill them. Um, but yeah, so then, so that year I started getting this, I got this pain in my side. I, I was on I glass bowls. I was on elk. Like it was going to happen. I went in three day, three or four days before the season started. And the night before opening day, I got this pain in my side and um, it was bad. Like I started, I, if you, I you do like downward dog, if you know yoga mm-hmm. or like way like a Muslim would pray on a rug, you know, that, that position where you're splayed out. If I did that, it went away. And so it was literally like midnight the night before opening day. I'm in a tent all by myself and I'm doing like downward dog trying to make this like hitch in my side go away. And uh, got up, sunshine came, daylight came, got up, got to the spot, this rock I was going to sit on and just got really, really sick. Um, started throwing up multiple dry heaves and make a long story short, um, I finally got down off the mountain. I didn't know what was going on. I bumped into a guy in there who happened to be a doctor, believe it or not. He was fly oh, fishing wow. lake. And he was like, look, man, your appendix bursts. Like, you're on a <laughs> clock. Like, you get out of here. And uh, hiked out. And I, that, I, I had that happen, by the way. I had an appendicitis. You uh, did? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm going to interrupt your story for one second because you'll find the humor in this. Um, I kind of just was like laying there in the bed. I was like, I don't feel so good. Looked up like it was a feeling I never had looked up appendicitis. I was like, Oh crap. I have appendicitis. So I drive myself to the emergency room. Well, I call my wife. She's a nurse. She's like, yeah, that sounds like what it is. Can you get there? I was like, okay. So I get there and I kind of stagger in. I'm like, I need uh, my appendix out now. And they're like, sir, sir, sir. We'll, you know, you've got to fill out this paperwork and we'll diagnose you. You know, I was like, I'm diagnosing myself. Get this thing out of me. They, anyway, they're like an hour later after a bunch of tests, like, sir, you, you, your appendix needs to come out. I was like, no kidding. Um, so they take my appendix out. We're supposed to go to, um, Mexico with some friends. We're going to go, uh, Marlin fishing. And I'm, and the doctor's like, yeah, you can still go. Just don't go swimming in the ocean. Okay. Come home. And like a day later, I'm like, this hurts worse than it did the first time. Well, when they took it out, some of that bile and stuff, like stayed in my gut and it got infected 
had to go back to the emergency room and spend like three days there. Missed the Mexico trip. And, um, but dude, I don't know if you, when you went, if they gave you Dilaudid, I never like stuck needles in my arms, never done hardcore drugs, but I could see why people like heroin because I was like, I went from in the worst pain in the world to tell my wife, I was like, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah so i have a i got a, a dilaudid or morphine i think they get told me they gave me morphine but i don't, uh, I don't really know but i i started hiking out so you know that pain right oh yeah it's it was I, i've literally broken bones that hurt less than this mm-hmm. and like i started i blacked out a couple times on the trail and like one point i came to and i was sitting indian style and i was like oh this is bad and, walk next time i woke up i was like laid out in the pine needles and i had a in reach and i was like i gotta hit that sos button and i looked at it and i opened it to like get the helicopter and there was like no service you know and i didn't know this at the time but like that no service bar on the old delorums was basically like i was going to send you a message but like the sos it's almost like emergency 911 on a cell phone like that would have worked had i hit it but I thought like there's no service and I thought I can get out of this. I don't want to be the guy who needs the helicopter like New Yorker goes west. Like I just don't want to. So I, so I didn't I didn't hit the button. But man, I was I was looking at it. Finally got to the trailhead, two hour drive to the hospital. And like you said, they were like, oh, sir, I need your license and registration and insurance card. And I was so out of my mind. I just screamed at the top of my lungs. I was like. I need to see an effing doctor and like slammed the stuff down. And then all of a sudden there's a security guard and a nurse and, and they took me in. I had to call my wife. They were like, we're prepping for surgery. This is severe. Uh, like tearful conversation with my wife. Like it was just a disaster. And then did you think when you were in the woods that you were going to die? Uh, yeah, there was a point I did. Yeah, there was yeah. a point I did. But part of me, like part of me must have known I wasn't because if I, in hindsight, I think like if I thought for certain this was it, like, why wouldn't I have called the helicopter? Right. You know what I mean? But like, so I don't know. I think in the moment, like I definitely thought like this was it. I remember like there were only two points of this whole thing where I got emotional. One was that phone call when I called my wife in the hospital. And the other one was like, as I was hiking out there, I was thinking like how stupid to like go alone, to get sick, to like die for as something as like cosmically kind of trivial as like elk or just wanting, to <laughs> you know? And then I started thinking about like, if I died, I was like, well, I'm okay with it. Like I'm good with whatever the thing is like, um, I've lived a good life. But then I started thinking about my mom and my wife and I started thinking about like the pain they would feel. And like, I think, like, I don't, I I think that could sound arrogant, but like, if you think about like a death as like a ripple effect in the lives of the people who remain here, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of pain with that, you know? So I started thinking about like, Oh my gosh, my wife would be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the I'm the best. What can I say? I'm the, yeah, I'm the greatest right. husband and father. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't even have kids at the time of this, but well, I think I my wife might have a different uh a different opinion. She's like, wait, you're you're going to Africa again? You a hole. It's like a broken record, you know, leaving me here with these three kids. She might throw a party. 
Who knows? Yeah, what's the insurance check look like, right? That's yeah, always exactly. But so I, I, I thought part of me, a big part of me thought it was over. I don't know if like viscerally I knew I thought it was or not, mm. because in hindsight, I think maybe I would have hit the button. Um, I don't know, man, but it was it was a, it was bad. But anyway, it wasn't appendicitis. It was not. So they started ruling it out and they found ruling that out and they found a kidney stone. Mm. And here I'm not I'm going to be graphic for a second. So I apologize to offend your readers, but or your listeners, I always thought the pain with a kidney stone was like in your pecker, frankly, like when, right. you're, when you're pissing it out, right? Uh-huh. Like you pebble, you got to move it. Like the idea of that hurts. And I've done that now. So yes, that does hurt, but <laughs> it doesn't hurt like half as bad as when the stone is moving from your kidney to your bladder because your kidneys connect to your bladder. It's a much smaller piping and I mean, it was literally like, I felt like I was getting shanked in the side. So like, I had no conception of kidney stones when no one in my family has it. I didn't know anyone who ever had one. Um, and so it was that like side pain of that, that stone moving out of the kidneys that, that got me. And then once they knew that they were like, oh, well, the treatment's like morphine or Dilaudid or whatever it was. And they Woo-hoo! hit me last oh yeah man <laughs> like totally get how people become heroin addicts yeah oh <laughs> so so then no elk on that trip yep no elk no elk i went back up like i was telling you beforehand and i i wrote about this i i'm a writer and editor for black rifle coffee we have this outdoor project free range american uh-huh. and i just posted kind of the long version of this whole story to the uh, free range american.us and i didn't really get into this in the written story but i got on a bull that year um and i left my good range finder when i went to the truck to go to the hospital it must have been in my pockets because i left the range my range finder in the truck i happened to have a backup in my tent Cause when I went down the mountain to the hospital, I just zipped everything in the tent and went like left mm-hmm. it in the mountain, bow, everything. Um, so when I got back, I had this backup range finder and I, I snuck in a herd. I got on this herd. Um, I, I'm not a caller. So it was like, I was high. They were low. They were looking down into the timber. I had the wind and I got close and uh, long story short, I drew on this bowl and I ranged the hole he was in at 50 and shot and went high in the back strap, um, uh, right over his lungs. Left, right was perfect. Oh, I've been there. And, he, and that elk's fine, by the way. Yeah, that elk is 100% fine. I thought the shot looked like I missed him cleanly. And then when I found the arrow, you could smell elk. So just mm-hmm. right in the back strap. So no elk that year. Um, went to and that rangefinder didn't compensate for angles correct that's, yeah, yeah that's why what the problem was yeah the cheap rangefinder that i had for backup didn't do angle compensation so that yeah. whole true 50 but the shot should have been you know 30 because i was i was high like on a on a ridge not on a ridge but on a hillside over him. um i was telling you off there that that's the biggest struggle for me as a bow hunter is those unknown distances, uh, distances and, and angle compensation. And I've lost or either missed, or now I've shot two elk that, uh, have not recovered that didn't die, but you know, it doesn't make me feel any better. Oh, I'm glad the elk didn't die, but still you're going home licking your wounds and 
he's licking a superficial wound, but he's knee deep in estrus, you know, yeah. uh, cow estrus the next day. He probably doesn't even know or care. He's like, oh, something bit me or yeah, it's, they're yeah. such tough animals. Yeah, and, that's, yeah. and that's not to justify making a bad shot. You know, I'm just saying really the, the, a shot in no man's land, a shot through the back strap, a shot on a bullet in a shoulder that you get one inch of penetration, not killing the damn things. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. They are tough, tough critters, man. Tough critters. Which makes us average bow hunters, I guess, feel a little better about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. We were talking before the podcast. I never thought about it in those terms. But now I have two shots on elk and one elk in the freezer. So yeah. I'm going to – I've never thought about it in those terms. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna make sure – I, I want to up my percentage in the coming years. Let's put it that way, you know, whether through – I have to take pride in the fact that I can get to within because a lot of people, first of all, not a lot of people go elk hunting. I mean, yeah. people that listen to this show do, but talking generally about hunters, most of them care about deer hunting. Yep. Then you split that percentage down, maybe what 20% actually will go elk hunting yeah. and then split that. And then there's the ones that go bow hunting, split that. How many of them actually get within range to have an opportunity in elk? I'm really damn good at that, Michael. Yeah. I am. But as far as killing them, like I'm like on the, I started out great in my elk hunting career, and I'm riding the struggle bus. So, it's yeah. uh, it's an emotional roller coaster, that's for sure. But so and no elk that trip. No elk, no elk that trip. Well, eventually your luck turns around, and uh, we'll continue on this journey after the break. That segment was proudly brought to you by Stealth Cam, and the new Reactor wireless trail camera takes amazing quality or HD quality images both day and night sends it right to the stealth cam app on your cell phone it's the reactor uh, you can find it at stealthcam.com and of course those data plans as cheap as five dollars a month now so very affordable I think the reactor is like uh, 160 dollars check it out we'll be right back with more from our friend and outdoor writer Michael R. Shea on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show cable here and if you're listening to this show you probably like ars and i'm not talking about antler restrictions i'm talking about you know ars modern sporting rifles and timber creek outdoors has the best way i've found to take your ar to the next level it's the enforcer kit it features high-end performance parts and jaw-dropping looks it's perfect for sportsmen competitors firearms enthusiasts and people who trust their lives to their equipment like you and i when combined together, these parts improve usability as well as ergonomics, big word there, and dependability of any small framed modern sporting rifle. Timber Creek products are manufactured by Americans in the USA, God bless America, and they implement uncompromising quality control and offer a lifetime warranty. They've got a bunch of different color options, something for everybody. I've got a Hunter Green Enforcer Kit on my 224 Valkyrie. Absolutely love it. You will too. Check out the Enforcer Kit at TimberCreekOutdoorsInc.com. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. 
That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Whiskey Myers bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here, riding shotgun with you as always. Thanks for dropping by today as we've still got our pal uh, outdoor writer, Michael Arche, on the line. Well, actually, on the Zoom. Uh, it's 2021. We don't need to record over the phone anymore. Now we do it on Zoom, which is great because you can check it out on the YouTube channel as well. See Michael's smiling face. Um, we'll pick it back up with him momentarily. This segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd like to invite you to join our ranks because there isn't a more passionate group of folks who are all in on protecting your rights as a hunter and conservationist. For more info, check us out at safariclub.org. With that being said, um, before the break, we were visiting with Michael about his, well, long list of failures in the elk woods, kidney stones, deaths in the family, uh, errant shots, you name it. He's been there and done that. But he finally found success this season. But I do think there's one other crazy story that has to be mixed in here somewhere uh, prior to that arrow finding its mark this September. This is kind of this is weird. I've I've only started talking about this this last year. Um, but I went out on a trip for a gun hunt with some guys I didn't really know. I knew one oh, of them. I read about this. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really know the crew, and we were staying all in the same motel. Um, and they picked me up at the airport. So, you know, like I was in it. I was in the hunting party. And um mm-hmm. Long story short, I watched uh, three guys kill six elk with rifles. Um, like, they just murked the whole herd. Like, it was, I think, five cows and a spike or three cows and two spikes. And they were moving in on they, – they came off this private ground and were coming across the public. And these guys were set up prone and bipods out, and it was perfect. And I was hunting with – my buddy because I, I wasn't though we were riding to the spots together and having dinners together and whatnot like i was hunting with my friend and they mm-hmm. were where they were and we were glassing because i think i don't even think i was we knew there wasn't a bull around there so i wasn't even we were looking for a deer for him and we were glassing and we were like oh there's the elk and then pan across we're like, oh there's your friends and we just watched this massacre happen um it was bad. It was three it was, guys shot six elk. Yep, three and guys shot six elk. You only this is in Colorado. You only get one dag. Oh yeah, and you can't kill spikes. Like there, the the oh, yeah. The, I remember I hunted Colorado cool. once, and we had a spike. It was so dumb. You eat Colin, and spikes are really dumb. To be honest, I mean, Colin, you could stand up. He'd look at you. He'd run away. Colin, he'd come back. Like, not smart animals. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like um yeah absolutely um so we watched so i watched this and they came to the truck and were rattled and i was just you know every f 
every profanity I could throw at these guys, I threw at these guys. And um, uh, one of the older guys like had to get one of the animals off um, because they were going to take the three and I guess they wanted to leave the three. I really disconnected from the insanity of that. Did they ever say like why they shot all six? Yeah, I mean, they said, like, before the game warden showed up, because, like, they rightfully got caught for all this, they were like, we, one of the guys was like, I didn't know which one I was shooting at, the other guy was like, oh, I blacked out, so they tried to play it off, like, innocently, like, dumb hunters, but, like, I mean, I was honestly, like, I was in my set, I was in my 30s, you know, mm-hmm. at, at this point, Um and these guys were all in their 60s you know it was a it wasn't it was an older crowd right and me and um they all should have known better like they didn't have an excuse like Mm -hmm. they didn't know their target they sent too many shots they didn't watch their impacts like they blew it whatever their excuse was it it made no difference to me so anyway there was one elk like that fell near to where the truck was and they had it on a cart and I helped the guy kind of pull the cart. Um, and then the game wardens we found out were watching this whole thing. Um, <laughs> and so a couple hours went by and they came to the motel and everybody was getting tickets. Everyone was going to lose it. And I just, I told them, I was like, I, I don't even know these guys. And he was like, well, you walked the cart past multiple animals in the field and didn't, didn't report it um and i was like i and i did i did not report it like that's like the this is it's weird talking about this because this is like i've done a lot of bonehead in my life but in like my hunting career like my number one regret is i didn't watch all of that and just dime them out immediately and call Mm -hmm. fishing game like in hindsight i 100 percent should have um i wish i did but uh Ultimately, I was not implicated. I didn't get a ticket. I didn't do anything. They were like, what happened? I was like, well, let me tell you what happened, you know. Um, and these guys all lost their hunting license and everything. So I actually, um, again, I didn't get deep into this in the story, but with that all got settled. Those guys went back to where they were from. It was me and this guy, the one guy I knew who also did not get a ticket. So my, my team was free and clear we hiked in a different spot and got on a bull uh a five by five and ranged them at like i think it was 420 something yards 427 yards is what i remember and he was bedded down and i had a a remington 700 rem mag or seven millimeter rem mag excuse me and I just being from New York and not like a rifle shooter, mainly being interested in duck hunting and bow hunting, um, I didn't take the shot. And he was like, oh, you should stretch it out. You should you should do it. And I was like, man, I've never shot over 300 yards. I'm not going to like wound this. And the whole trip. Well, that's crazy compared to where you are today. Poisoned. Yeah, yeah. Totally different animal now. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do a lot of long range shooting now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Like this is it's all this was years ago. It's all kind of come yeah. full circle. Yeah. But um I said I'm not gonna take that shot. And so I walked we glass that bowl, took pictures of them through the spotting scope and everything. And I was like, I'm done. I'm not even gonna Here's a question it. for you. Yeah. Would you take a shot on a bedded animal? Because I sure as hell would. But there's people out there that are like it, 
oh, that's so unethical. Why would you shoot an animal in its bed? Well, yeah. isn't the goal to have the animal as still as possible and make the best shot possible? If he's in his bed, I guarantee you, he doesn't know where, where I am or he wouldn't yeah. still be there and he ain't moving. Yeah, I'm with you, you know, and like I've heard all these weird reasons like vitals are compressed or like blah, fair. Blah, blah. Like, I just I don't buy any of it. And that actually first came. I first learned about that when I was looking at the guidelines for running um, uh, media on hunting television. So like mm -hmm. the outdoor channel guidelines. And they had one very specifically that said no kill shots on animals in the bed. And this led to a discussion with the team I was working with on some media projects then. And like none of us could really get our head around it. But I think what it comes down to is capturing that on film. Like some people have this irrational idea that it's somehow like unethical. Um, it's not because one, like as a sportsman and a hunter, you've been able to sneak in on an animal mm -hmm. and it is not only it doesn't see you, it's so relaxed. It's hasn't even got to its feet. There's no issue on vitals, especially like. Let me tell you what's more ethical. Wait till he stands up and has a, a, a mouthful of grass. That's when you shoot him. Yeah. That somehow makes it more ethical. That's this is the dumbest thing ever. Like exactly. And I wish that you know I love Outdoor Channel, but I wish they wouldn't pander to the the anti hunting faction out there. Like who who cares? We, on, at some point, we just need to be proud of who we are and what we do. We don't need to be graphic about it. And I'm and I'm certainly all for cleaning up the blood. But hey, I still love a grip and grin photo. I'm not one of those people who has to be like, oh, this is me kneeling by the animal and I'm looking at it like it's you know it's just. I, whatever put it on your tailgate wipe the blood off stick the tongue in its mouth take your picture and smile yeah and don't yeah. and don't don't hide it behind that be proud of it yeah it's almost like um there was a while i think it, it's funny how like that moves right so it was mm -hmm. like there's a while where i think there were definitely like a lot of like tasteless like bloody arrows and animals tongue hanging out photos then the reaction to that was holier than thou like kneeling at the animal or like just the hand touching it you know all those corny like <laughs> pseudo religious like they, yeah it's awful um but i think like you said like the truth is somewhere in the middle you know like yeah you can you can, you can do grip and grins and you can do imagery tastefully um and not be just one extreme. have you been to africa no no yeah so your ph and your tracker it's like a an hour-long photo shoot after you get an animal down because they're very conscious about and it's a grip and grin right your your ultimate goal is a nice grip and grin the tracker carries like a two gallon water jug and a sham a chamois like cloth yeah. and they wipe everything off dude i mean it is it's a production <laughs> well they understand what the implications of a negative right can do in 2020 oh, 100 yeah. yeah 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 so so you got an elk this year we're getting we've got a roundabout but uh oh. so talk about this this elk that you shot yeah so um so, so many x number of seasons later it finally came to fruition yeah yeah so i basically like i feel like i've had an elk curse you know like every there's been a couple other trips like they just don't work out and they tend to end they tend to end like in big failure so i was talking to a buddy of mine um he's a photographer at black rifle coffee we were at tack at snowbird and i was telling him did you story. know black rifle is a new uh sponsor of the show by the way 
Oh, awesome. Well, I this my cup right here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's rad, man. Well, you do yeah. good work. So I'm not surprised. And our marketing guys are good at finding, like finding the place. Um, Big so, fan. yeah. So we were, we, I, I was talking to my buddy Curtis and I told him these whole stories were sitting around. He said, well, we got to go back. I was like, oh, I guess so. You know? And so this elk hunt came together like really last minute. Um, we went to my spot. Um, my buddy, uh, Mike Hearn, who uh, he's an active duty guy, a black rifle, free range American guy, runs around a lot with um, uh, Kafaru. He's buddies with Darren. Um, mm-hmm. He ended up last minute. He couldn't make it. Then he decided to come. He hiked in. I got on uh I glassed a six by six and uh, two five by fives the night before the season, the day, the morning before the season, excuse me. And then it rained, man. And I mm. mean, like we were in our tent, like eight, like 18 hours, like zipped in just pouring, pouring rain. And then it cleared out and it was opening morning and we couldn't find hide or hair of those bulls. Um, Hearn hiked in. He spent, uh, we spent about a day hiking through our spot and he was telling, he told Aaron about kind of where we were coming. And like, as another side note, doing a lot of those, but like Aaron and I worked together way back in the day at outdoor life. Like when he was doing the live hunt thing. So. I, I respect Aaron a lot because he will not sugarcoat it. Yeah. Um, and some of the Western people out there afraid of putting out like their political opinions and don't want to touch wolves and all this other stuff. Now, Aaron, is a shoot from the hip kind of guy. And I think that's why him and I get along so well. Yeah. I mean, he, he calls it like he sees it. Yeah. You know? and I think that's why when Hearn told him where we were going, he was like, why the f- are you going there? That's where you go to mountain goats, <laughs> you know? So like no sugarcoating that. And so Hearn was like, you know, Snyder's got a spot nearby here where we can get there in a couple hours drive. Like, what if we try that? So we ended up, backing out of the spot where I have all this negative history um, and ended up going Leave that bad juju there. Yeah. Go somewhere else. Leave it there. And uh, yeah, man. And we got on them and we've been, we spent about seven days backpacked in hiking off our backs, one night in a truck, six nights backcountry, one night in a truck. I had four or five more days to hunt because we were going to do that for the full two weeks before muzzleloader season. Mm-hmm. We just all that time, except that first night, I wasn't on elk. And it was the first time I've done this. Like every year I've been able to pretty much kill a cow, like archery close to cows. Like even when I was doing it by myself, I was bumping into them on trails. I drew like I had shots. This trip was different. I was just on, it was an elk desert. Mm. And so when we finally heard them and we set up and we kind of waited in this lone cow walk through, I was just, I was ready to, ready to fill the freezer and like send it and kind of get the elk curse lifted. And she, we heard them, we sat, mule deer kind of filtered through and then uh, saw this cow and I saw her and I grabbed the grabbed the bow. I looked at my buddy Curtis and he, he had seen it too. So he had his camera up ready to take photos. And then, um, I ranged it and I got like 56 yards and I put the slider on 50 and then Hearn, who was sitting on a tree on my left. Then he saw it. He was like, put the range finder away. I'll range, I'll range. And so she walked and stopped like perfectly covered up with trees, you know? So like, if this is her, 
like she stopped completely in the in the the trees and so i just waited and it was like three maybe four minutes of a waiting game and then she stepped out and it was like it was absolutely like a total archery challenge shot i don't know if you shot those but she stepped between two trees Mm -hmm. and like it was vitals and there were like these two trees right there those shots are fun in 3d (laughs) (laughs) nerve-wracking on an animal (laughs) but he's the whole time this is happening like like Hearn was awesome he's like 50 52 54 and i had that slider at 50 so i just you know when, once i saw that gap in the trees just set the set it and um yeah man sent it and like you know 10 ringer uh uh double long and it was literally 10 or 15 seconds of running and then we heard the crash of her mm. just going ass over tea kettle through the woods um so it was it was awesome. I mean, it was pretty sad. <laughs> like walk up on them and like smell the elk and like see the blood and like pack out the meat. Just the whole process, you know, it finally came together. Um, and it was, it was awesome, man. It was, it was, it was a long time coming. Yeah. Well, and you'll do it again next year, I'm sure. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> now everybody's That's the like, problem, right, man. That's you the problem. It's addicting. Yeah. It's, it's like, and you're from New York and I'm from Texas. So places like, well, elk hunting's foreign to us. Right. But once you do it once, it's like, now I'm, I'm, whether the Westerners want me or not, I'm in their fraternity. And although I only get to play in their playground for one or two weeks a year, it's my favorite thing to do. So, um, yeah, I've never missing a season as long as I can physically do it. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, and like, and what I like about it is, um, it really is like a destination hunt for me. Like it is for you. Mm-hmm. Like I live at 1800 feet, you know, and like, I, I like to work out I and mean, I'm sitting in my gym. Like I like to run I do races, you know, but I'm not like, I'm not campaigns. Like I'm a dad. Right. Yeah. So, but like, when I think about like, Oh, I have an elk hunt, like that motivates me to spend more time in this room and like try to get faster and try to run more miles. And so like, I, I love the experience of elk, of elk and elk hunting, but I really like like the organizing principle, like mountain hunting, mountain hunting kind of applies to my life. It like, it forces me to be disciplined and kind of have like a long-term goal that requires like, physicality it requires me going to tax it requires me shooting my bow a lot you know i can't like just kind of half-ass it and show up like i feel like i do every single whitetail season or right. like single <laughs> you know like yeah. the, the mountains will run you out if you are not prepared oh yeah there's no I, doubt but and just like you you know it, it keeps me motivated to uh to hit the gym so it's um it's a justified pursuit there's no doubt um let's do this let's take a quick break we'll come back and uh we'll get into a completely different topic sound good yeah man thanks all right up next we'll get into michael's new book the rimfire revolution and dive into this phenomenon of the modern 22 precision rifle that has swept across the shooting community um, that segment brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for over a decade, whether that's a complete African safari, a mountain lion from Colorado, or a speckled trout 
from the Texas coast or big South Texas whitetail. You name it, they do it. They offer amazing quality taxidermy with quick turnaround time. They answer the phone when I call, and they've got two locations, one in San Antonio and one in Marion, Texas. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. We'll be right back with more from Michael Arshay on SCI's Star Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. Offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services, call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. Star Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology has been helping me light up the night for over a decade. Uh, currently got two incredible units, the Helion 2.0 Thermal Monocular. Like You can detect things out in a field over a thousand yards. It's insanity. Plus, pairing that with a Thermion XP50 Thermal Rifle Scope. Dude, it's like poor pigs, to be honest with you. Coyotes as well. It's... uh. The technology alone has come so far in the last few years, and the price has gone down, so the working man can't afford it. The Thermion has internal recording. It has a diverse color palette. You want to do red hot, white hot, black hot, which is my favorite. You know, there's other ones as well. It's got too many to even count off the top of my head. It is the creme de la creme when it comes to thermal optics. It's the Thermion XP50. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. Well, I grew up wild and free, walking these fields in my bare feet. There wasn't no place I couldn't go with a 22 rifle and a fishing pole. Well, One of my favorites there from Josh Turner bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Mossberg Firearms. Lord have mercy on a country boy in the name of that one. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you for dropping by as we are still visiting uh, with Michael Arche. We're actually about to talk 22 rifles here in just a second. But first, this segment of the show, proudly brought to you by the brand spanking new Mossberg 940 Waterfowl. Uh, I actually had the chance to use this new semi-auto loading platform dove hunting a couple weeks ago. Dude, this thing is Sweet, and here's the thing. You can get 15 rounds through it before you have to clean it. I love it. It's the Mossberg 940. Look for it this fall. Waterfowl and field editions coming at you fall 2021. All right, let's pick it back up with Michael, who was nice enough to stick around. Uh, thanks for doing that, my friend. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me back. We're going to talk about the new book, Rimfire Revolution, A Complete Guide to Modern 22 Rifles. Uh, two things in my own personal life alerted me to this modern-day 22 phenomenon. Number one, you sent me a copy of your book. Number two, I went up to Vortex headquarters and to the uh, Vortex Edge up in Wisconsin and shot like a $10,000 precision 22, which I didn't even know was a thing. And then um, Jimmy over there was like, yeah, dude, this is like the, it's like the in thing now. It's in vogue. People are spending all this money on 22s and 
we shot at the indoor range and we're like plinking like like quarter sized targets at 100 yards no problem i was like this is a far cry from what i did when i was a kid <laughs> yeah they've so, come a long way in yeah, a short crazy yeah so when did this first what like take hold of, of like people really getting into precision high-end 22 rifles so um so like the book is called like rimfire revolution and mm -hmm. like i tell everyone like that's not just cute alliteration like an actual like revolution in rimfire happened um and we're on the the bleeding edge of it you know uh four or five years ago like two things kind of really happened um the first was guys who were doing prs wanted a comparable platform for training with 22s mm -hmm. and to make a long complicated story short and simple uh a guy named mike bush who ultimately started voodoo firearms figured out how to reliably feed rimfire rounds in a remington 700 footprint size rifle action so okay. out of that community, he was he was converting 40 X's originally, but out of that community on Sniper's Hide came this rifle, um, came this rifle action. That was at first like super custom. You had to get him to make it for you in, you know, Internet forums. About the same time, like uh, the National Rifle League, uh, Travis Ishida and Tyler um Ferner, sorry, Tyler, I'm probably butchering your last name. Um, they decided to come up with what they thought would be like a minor league version of their, you know, PRS style National Rifle League matches. So they said, well, why don't we come up with a, a 22 game? Um, hmm. Their like major innovation and like it really is an innovation um, was that they standardized the course of fire for every club in America. And it only required a hundred yards. So rather than going to like, like a PRS match, like I'm sure you've been to, or an NRL match where it's a destination event. A lot of people are driving many hours. It's a weekend thing. You're shooting. It's almost like you're going to shooting Disneyland. You're going to go mm -hmm. shoot a match this weekend. All of a sudden you had the same style of matches being held at local ranges with just a hundred yards. And like, I don't, I mean, you're in Texas, so you're probably better off than I am in the Northeast, but like finding a place to shoot really far is difficult. Like I can shoot 200 easy. I can shoot 400 with a little work to get to a thousand or further. Like I got to drive really far and like get landowner permission. Like it's a huge pain in the ass, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, hundred yards. Like I can shoot that in my yard here. I live in the boonies. Um, so all of a sudden what the, the, the innovation, if you will, of NRL 22 is they said, anybody with a hundred yards can hold these matches. We're going to standardize the course of fire. So if you're shooting in Arizona or Texas or New York, you're shooting the same off the same barricades at the same distance at the same target size. And we're going to take all those scores and we're going to put them together on the internet and we're going to see how everybody competes. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, nascar in a way you know like where you have all of these races happening all over and the points are adding up towards a season championship and like uh mike bush at voodoo when he got started like he didn't see it as being a business he thought it was like super cool and like something he would do 
as like a hobby. He was, he's a very accomplished engineer in the firearm space. He was a director of engineering at a, at a mega firearms company when he kind of figured this out. So he was sort of taken off guard by the success of these rifles and the public appetite for these rifles. NRL 22 was taken off guard because they had no idea so many shooters would clamor to this. And then the industry kind of caught on. So now you have like at really legit precision rimfire rifles at every price point. And you can get a, a $300 Savage that I have one here. It's a barn burner, or you can get a $3,000 Voodoo. I have one of those too. It's a smoke show, or you could get a Bagara barreled action on a Remington 700 foot point for 600 bucks. Or if you're a squirrel hunter, like the Tikas and the CZs around the $500 price point. So, so like five, six years ago, nobody was talking about this. It was like gun nerds on a forum and like right. some shipping guys. And now like it actually is like a revolution. Like the rimfire thing has just come to flood the shooting industry. And we're all better for it, frankly, because there's so many rad rimfire rifle options available today that just didn't exist even three or four years ago what has or how has ammunition changed to accommodate this demand has it has it gotten better uh or are these guys shooting that same you know bulk ammo buy that we got when we were here's your brick of 22 ammo that you paid you know 15 dollars for which it isn't a thing anymore but it was you know it was at one time yeah not not really, you know, like, um, and I can't, I can't really speak to how much better the ammo itself has gotten, but like within that rimfire community, the recognition of good ammo has like definitely taken hold. So like, you, you really got to think of ammunition, rimfire ammo as like the Europeans and the Americans. Um, European ammo is made in like, it's, it's like, it's, it's just short of like a laboratory setting for the very best ammo that's coming out of particularly Ely and Lapua. And the reason for that is because they want to win Olympic medals, you know? So those are ammunition factories and processes that are geared towards like peak precision. American ammunition uh, is all is almost like still in a f- place like where like grandpa's squirrel rifle was, where mm-hmm. it was all about bulk, 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 bulk. Um, that said, there's still like a lot of very good options. So, um, like I I shoot a ton of CCI. Like CCI standard in most of my guns is like that's one of the first rounds I put through my guns. Mm-hmm. Um, I also shoot a lot of Lapua as well, my match rifles, but um, they're definitely like really solid American options. And when you're talking about like an NRL 22 match and being like super accurate at 50 or hundred yards, like, like CCI standard is my go-to. Like that said, um, because I, I, I run a few voodoos, the voodoo chamber and process was designed around the Lapua bullet and the Lapua case. So I also, I shoot a lot of that, but as I kind of went off on a tangent where I was going with that was the shooters who do this, 
who, who do this NRL 22 are completely aware of the importance of quality ammo for accuracy. So like, like Lapua, for example, just opened a uh, year, two ago, two years ago now, opened mm-hmm. another test tunnel in Ohio. They have a test tunnel in Arizona. Um, Kilo's Shooting, which is owned by Ely in Texas, they have a test tunnel. A few years ago, you could call them and show up and test a rifle. Now you need to book out in some case months ahead of time because where in five years ago, it was like rimfire bench rest shooters who cared about this stuff. Now there's this whole mass of tactical precision shooters who want to get match ammunition, European ammunition, literally matched or lined up with their particular rifle. Hmm. Well, you know, before BLM, COVID, all the social unrest we've seen in our country, it seemed like there was a time, and then, and and I'm going to tell you this: I don't own a 22, which you know, shame on me. Oh, but uh, yeah, I don't have one. I have a 17 HMR, um, which is my rimfire rifle. But good, good round. But you got to get in the on the 22. Thing. I, I know, I know. Um, but so, but there was a time when you could, and and. Part of the reasons why, you know, I never ended up getting one later on in life was you couldn't find ammo for a few years there. This was before the ammo shortage that we've seen in the last two years. Has that market corrected itself? And is it easy to find 22 ammo now? No, I, um, that's a good question. And I don't have a great answer for that. Um, I'm like definitely a ammo hoarder, like shamelessly for all Dude, of the- if I go into the store and there's- ammo for a gun that i own a caliber i own i buy it <laughs> like i don't even like <laughs> yeah 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 100 me too yeah. um i don't need it but i'm buying that, it that said actually though you know so like i haven't had to buy ammo in a long time because mm-hmm. when i'm writing the book and when and like i was obsessed with this for years before the book came out so i've been hoarding rimfire for a while that said though um center x in particular like there's just uh in the last I think it was this summer, a whole new big order came in from Germany. So like, um, not to plug sites, but like, I know Target Sports USA, which is a popular wholesaler of ammo, like they had Center X, a lot of the precision rimfire forums that I'm in, um, uh, or groups rather on Facebook, guys are posting like Brownells and Midway had Lapua. Um, so yes, I think it is, um, it is coming back, uh, but I think rimfire, like in the last ammo shortage, if you can think about like what happened in the the Obama years, um, rimfire is always the last to return to Mm -hmm. normalcy because it's the, it's the least expensive. Um, and it's a good point. I, I, um, I interviewed, uh, 22 Plinkster, awesome dude. And he's in the, in the back of the book, there's like a series of interviews with thought leaders. So like, Jeannie Thrasher, who won an Olympic gold medal, is in there. Mike Bush, Dave Emery, who designed your 17 HMR round. Like I did a big interview with him. But um, but Dave said something, uh, Dave Nash, 22 Plinkster, said something really smart. Like when you look at all the civil unrest and you look at COVID, like a lot of people got afraid and a lot of people bought firearms who otherwise wouldn't. You know, they, were they weren't buying 22s. Firearms. They weren't buying 22s. That's right. right. They, what they were buying was small frame polymer nine millimeters, right? Mm-hmm. 
and maybe maybe rifles, but right. you saw handguns in defensive calibers skyrocket. So like like Plinkster pointed out, the majority of those people, I would argue, took their new nine millimeter and went to the range and shot it and thought, holy shit, this is awesome. Because shooting guns is awesome, right? Like handgun, rifle, like I love them all. I'm a projectile enthusiast. So those people went and they shot that. And then they went and they went to buy another box of ammo. And it was 40 bucks for 49 millimeter rounds, like if they could find it. But they were hooked. So that guy said, well, how do I get to shoot more? And the guy in the counter is like, well, get a get a 22 get a 1022, get a, get a Taurus, you know, they're, they're, they have a rad 22 LR pistol, you know? So all of a sudden that guy who bought the nine millimeter that he can't afford to shoot or can't find ammo for, or just wants to train on something lighter buys a 22. And then all of a sudden he's hunting out ammo like you and I are. So I think the, the buying habit of consumers, like they're going to buy, those new shooters are going to pick up the rimfire rifle later in their purchasing history. And when they do, they're going to be looking for ammo later down the line. So 22 in guns and ammo will be the last sort of thing to, to bounce back. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think, I think makes a lot of sense. I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it. I was talking with Linda Powell from Mossberg and she told me like their analysis of the situation was, People were going first time gun buyers. We were going to the store yeah. and they were saying, okay, what gun do you have that I can get ammo with today? I mean, that's like, the, that's the mentality of people was like, they were so concerned with the direction of the country that they're like, I don't give a crap what it is. If you have ammo and you have the gun that it goes with, I'm, that's what I'm walking out of here with. Yeah. And, uh, and I think yeah. that that's kind of bounced back a little bit, but it was just like insanity. Um, yeah, I, I thought like during all of the chaos, um, I was really impressed with federal and those videos they came out with, with their CEO, because he basically was like, look, the government's not buying stuff. The military isn't stealing ammo, like relax. And he basically laid out, like, I think at the time there were like 7 million new gun owners. Yeah. It was like, what's the first thing you do when you buy a gun, you buy two, three, four boxes of ammo for it. So all of a sudden you have, you know, 21 million new boxes of ammo being sucked off the market conservatively. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, it's not a I don't think it's fully recovered, but it, uh, you know, no, it's turning in the right direction. And then we have this idiot Biden say, oh, uh, Putin, you poisoned this guy. And now Americans can't buy your ammo (laughs) like, oh, what an idiot. But anyway. What percentage of the market, like does Wolf or any of the the Russian brands constitute a significant portion of of rimfire ammunition? That's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Um, Uh Like Wolf uh, 22 is currently manufactured by Ely. Um, Wolf is, I I don't believe they're a Russian company. Um, I think what they do is they just buy up factory space around yeah. the world so like ely has extra capacity and they buy their cheap ammo and they wrap it and i think for nines and five five six and whatnot they're doing that with the russian companies yeah. um i don't i don't expect the 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 russian ban which is like admittedly 
like just dumb like how many years after the fact and like whatever we won't get into the politics well no i mean we can't it has nothing to do with anything like putin poisoning a guy has no no logistical effect on whether the american people can buy ammunition here's biden's been hand handcuffed by good people like joe manchin who refused to vote party lines and and this is his well we got to do something so we'll just make it harder for americans to buy ammo it's a backdoor way to make it more expensive and more difficult for americans to buy 100 percent. yeah yeah that's 100 percent what it is now that said i think if there is um shorter if there is shorter total supply of all ammunition we're going to see prices go up on all ammunition Mm -hmm. whether there's enough 22 or not um but for all the reasons that we just talked about like that's going to be the last to come around. And once people start panic buying because they're not seeing the nine millimeter, the five, five, six on the shelf, like if they do see that bucket of bullets for 22s and they have one, they're, they're going to buy it. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't think it's going to like directly affect supply of bullets in country, but it will absolutely prolong the, 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 the ammo shortage and increased prices yeah. be my guest right on right on well hey we're going to take a quick break come back put a little bow on this conversation uh by getting into the history of rimfire rifles actually one in particular was the gun that won the west but why did they fall out of popularity around the turn of the 20th century uh, michael will give us his thoughts on that and that segment, by the way, brought to you by NUMA Outdoors, our apparel sponsor. And get this, we're doing a NUMA Chizos day pack giveaway right now. MSRP, 200 bucks for this day pack. Just go to my Instagram or Facebook. You can see the giveaway there. If you're not on social media, uh, you can still enter by emailing the word NUMA. That's P-N-U-M-A to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. We're drawing the winner on the uh, 29th of September live on uh, Instagram. So, Check it out. Numa Chizos Day Pack. We're giving one away. And you'll get 20% off your entire Numa order. That's anything in their online store when you use my promo code LOMESTAR20. We'll be right back with Michael Larche on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Become the home of the afraid. Afraid of the world. Afraid of the truth. Afraid of each other. This ain't the country my grandfather fought for But I still see the hate he fought against Did you know Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping people finance their own slice of paradise for over 100 years? Whether you're looking for a place to go hunting, fishing, maybe you fancy yourself as a rancher and you want to run cattle. They've got you covered there as well. Or, hey... The world's getting crazier by the minute. Maybe you just want to get the hell out of the big city, whether that's on the weekends or for good. Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. Like I said, they've been at it for over 100 years. They can make that dream a reality when it comes to you acquiring that rural property that you've always wanted. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. There's something nostalgic about the old-timey general store, and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwaith, Texas, at the Mills County General Store. They're licensed FFL with rifle, pistols, and shotguns, ammo, gun accessories, hunting accessories, deer, corn, and attractants, sporting goods. They've got a wide array of knives to choose from, plus insulated apparel for both work and 
camo for hunting season, fishing supplies. They've got foods like Anchor Tea, grass-fed beef, Dublin sodas, gourmet sauces, and a whole lot more. Also, Ace Hardware. From wall to wall, they have it all. Check it out. The Mills County General Store right there in Goldthwaite, Texas. I like to drink and have a good time. Stay up till dawn, spend my last dime. I've been jailed the time of three. But I'm not saying that's a man I'll be. That's the Bodarks, Take Me As I Am, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. We are still talking rimfires, specifically modern precision 22s, with our friend Michael Arche, author of The Rimfire Revolution. Um, we're going to get into the history of rimfire rifles in just a second. Fascinating stuff, by the way. But first, this segment proudly brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants. I got permission to hunt a property that I have not hunted in about three years. Uh, last week, went out on Tuesday afternoon, put out the Big and J, filled up the all-seasons feeder, sprinkled a little Big and J BB squared in there. Man, three nice bucks on camera within 24 hours. Like I said, I haven't even stepped foot on that place in three years. It works. Check out that BB squared at bigandj.com. And with that being said, Michael, thanks for sticking around through the break. One of my favorite chapters in the book was when you kind of went through the history of the Rimfire. Awesome. And the the Rimfire wasn't always a plinking platform. I mean, there were some big calibers, and I don't if you know any of the or remember any of the ones specifically off the top of your head. But like uh, in the eighteen what fifties and sixties, the, the big yeah. calibers were rimfires. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the gun that won the West was a, a round called the forty four Henry Flat, which right. looks like a, a giant twenty two, right? Forty four caliber, um, and all. So I'm glad you were into that chapter as well because like researching the book like i the history was the most new to me like uh -huh. writing it because i was so focused on like tweaking guns and tuning guns and the competition shooting um and i was surprised with it too but and i and i loved i loved it so so that's awesome to hear but basically like the early history of firearms was cartridge development and then designers trying to wrap a firearm around the way ammunition worked um, that's the best way to think about it. And when they first came up with metallic cartridge, all in like self-contained metallic ammunition. So powder primer and bullet in one case that you can yeah. put in a pouch and load in a gun, not muzzle load or anything. The first ad, the way they figured out how to ignite primer was through punching through the rim of a case, the soft side of brass. So all those early firearms really up until, um, you know, center fire development started at kind of the turn of the century, but didn't really take hold until like well into it. Um, really from like, for a consumer point of view, from like the 1930s 
prior, like the, it was all rimfire. You know, the predominant rounds were were rimfire. Um, 1920s about, but um, yeah. but yeah, it's neat. It's it's really uh, fascinating, and like a lot of people have asked me. So, you know, the the book covers um, all rimfire caliber. So, like, there's a lot on 17 HMR, 17 Mach 2, 22 Magnum. But the history story, uh, the 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 history story that I tell is the development of the 22 short that Smith and Wesson came up with. Center fire development, and like a little of this is uh, some of this is a little fuzzy because I just kind of skipped through it. And you probably have a much smarter guy on center fire uh, than me on here. But um, a lot of that happened at like the turn of the century. Yeah. But it didn't really um, escalate until the advent of smokeless, of like full smokeless powders, um, which came about, which like really kind of took hold like in the late, like 1890s turn of the century. But it wasn't um, until like the 1930s with like the cleaner primers and cleaner. Primers. Well, I'm sure too, because everyone owned a center fire rifle, like, you know, the average Joe. So that, that has to correct itself too, just because now here's this new technology. Not everyone's just going to run out and buy one. They like what they have. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone owned a rim fire. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Everyone yeah. owned a rim fire. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it was, it was definitely like the, the platform, if you will, for like modern firearms through the 1800s and much of the early, um, 1900s, uh, you know, center, center fire pressures can go so much higher, as we all know, and round so much flatter that once those took hold, that clearly took off. And it's why there are really no more big bore rimfire rounds. Um, but like that was all happening in like the first 30 years of the 1900s. OK, right on. But right on. Well, yeah, uh, so I, I really enjoyed that historical component of uh, looking back at the evolution of firearm manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the story of like the 22 short, cause that was kind of a real American round. Um, and if you don't know anything about guns, like if you don't know the difference between primer and powder and bullet and case, like, I think you could read that story about the 22 short and like very quickly understand how all firearms work, mm. how ammunition is made and how guns work. So I was really kind of taken with that history and the way they, they figured that out. So I told you I have a 17 HMR yep. and I love it. I, so I didn't grow up shooting. I mean, I had a BB gun, but I was yep. so involved in sports that um, like I never owned a 22. I shot my buddies occasionally. Uh, and then when I got into this industry, like 15 years ago, it was like the first gun that I ever owned. Well, that's not true. I bought a Remington 870. I had to wait a bunch of tables, bartend a little bit here and there to be able to afford that. So I could go duck hunting with my buddies. That was my um, first gun too. And same story. I got an 870 <laughs> to go duck hunting. Yeah, yeah. Still have it. I'll give it to my son someday. Um, but then I think the first rifle I ever owned was a 308. And I was like, I was just getting into this and, I kind of fell into hosting an outdoor talk show in East Texas at the time I was into duck hunting and dove hunting. We grew up fishing and camping. My dad is still just eating up with bass fishing to this day. That's his favorite thing to do. He does it every weekend. Um, so I was not, it wasn't like I was not in the outdoors, but 
he just didn't hunt. His dad didn't hunt. And you know, that's one of the things that's passed down, uh, generation to generation. So I got into it 20, 20 years old and, um, I never had that 22. So I got my kid a 17 HMR from Mossberg. They sent it over to him and I've shot it more than him because I just enjoy it so much. But those, those small calibers are so great for introducing kids into shooting sport. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool to hear that. Like we have very similar stories. Like I grew up fishing and doing outdoor stuff, but no guns, no Mm -hmm. hunting. And I was, um, I, I was, I guess I was like 24, I think I was. And I wrote a story. I was a newspaper reporter at the time about duck hunting and got my hunter safety and went through it and started shooting ducks and like changed the whole direction of my life. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, the, the shooting thing, like I don't have a, a family history or a cultural history of like marksmanship. Right. Like yeah. we were talking about yesterday or in the first half of this, like I had a bull elk bedded at 427 yards with a, a seven, seven mag, seven, millimeter, seven mag. Thank you. Yeah. Seven millimeter rem mag. I got rid of that gun. I hated that gun. So I have like a blackout whenever I think of it. Um, but anyway, I didn't take that shot because it was like, that's too long. Was it the rifle or the caliber? Cause I like a seven mag. It just, it was a used rifle I bought and uh-huh. uh, the, it, it was probably the Indian and not the bow. The first, very first, as another guy set it up for me. And the first time I pulled the trigger, I scoped myself so bad. I thought I broke my nose. And mm. uh, that 308 did that to me once. I was like, I don't, I've never had a migraine, but I think this is what it probably feels like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I talk about this all the time, but I believe like firearms, bows, like there's magic to them and it either like fits you and everything works and like it's to go or there's bad magic and you got to get rid of it. So like, uh, I have that 308 now belongs to my brother, by the way. Yeah. So there you go. Bad <laughs> magic. Send it down the road. <laughs> get rid of it. Yeah. I have a 308, like uh, uh, it's a Kimber actually. It's an inexpensive rifle light. It's got a cheap Vortec on it actually. Um, and dude, I point that rifle at deer and they die. And like, yeah. I have much nicer rifles, much more expensive. I have cool calibers, but like that little budget 308, like just kill stuff. And it's got mm-hmm. like good magic. Uh, the rem, the, the, the seven mag did not, but so like, I had no shooting history where like, I wouldn't take that shot. Um, and I was prone bipod animal on the bed, like no wind, like totally ethical, longer, but ethical shot. Nowadays, from coming up into the 22 stuff, like I'm setting up rifles to shoot a thousand yards. I'm shooting 22s at 500 yards. Like the the rimfire stuff, um, like I've become a better total rifle shot and hunter because of the time I've spent just goofing around with these rimfires. Um, my five-year-old calls them the fun guns. <laughs> like shoot a lot. And he's like, Dad, I want to shoot the fun gun because there's not a lot of sound, not a lot of recoil. Mm-hmm. And then like talking about like new gun owners and the civil unrest and all this stuff. Um, I live in a very like progressive college town, and I had friends who were like, Hey, times are scary. We want to learn about guns. So I brought over a bunch of like grown ass men who just didn't grow up in gun culture but were interested and I had them shooting a bunch of stuff and um, I started them on 22s and they loved it. And it was funny, like the, the bigger rifles with muzzle brakes and whatnot, like they were all like a little, like, you know, they're just not gun guys or yeah. anything 
close to gun guys and like, they will be hopefully yeah you gotta maybe. start somewhere <laughs> <laughs> not not these guys um but uh like like even like uh a two two three like with a muzzle break and part of that was my fault like i had a I can shoot in my office outside, slide the door. And like the concussion from the muzzle break in the office, like in the door, like they were like, no way. You know? <laughs> didn't want to shoot that anymore. Um, whereas with the 22, like they were ringing like quarters at 50 yards and loving it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's got a lot of great training applications. You can small game hunt with them. I mean, I've kind of become an evangelist for rim fires. Um, but I think it's I think it's warranted because you can just do so much with them. You know, whatever your age, even old, young, there's just there's there's a lot there. So what is the advantage of a 22 over a 17 HMR? So with the 22, you can compete in NRL 22 or PRS room fire. Um, the uh, 22 is a makes a better training rifle if you want to get better with center fire because there's um uh a rough scaling between bullet drop and wind deflection of a 22 and a 308 um these guys fin accuracy um you should google them it's in the book but their uh-huh. website's fantastic um kind of roughly figured out that there's like a 4x factor so like if you're shooting a 22 match 22 match velocity 22 at uh 200 yards that's like roughly equivalent of shooting a 308 at 800 yards so the amount of twists in the optic the 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 bullet drop the way the wind moves it like they correlate very closely not perfectly and it depends on rifles but it's very comparable um so so as like a training tool um 22 is really kind of risen above all of the others. It's also like generally like less expensive. Like mm-hmm. I kind of, I name dropped CCI earlier. Well, I shoot that Hornady VMAX and they're 17 grains and they are not cheap. And Hornady sent me a bunch of them, but the kids have run through those. And now it's like, it was a lot easier for comp to get companies to send folks like us ammo before the shortage happened. I figured yeah, out like the like, cable, what do you want? Oh yeah. Let me send you whatever. Now I feel bad even asking them. So when I see it on the shelf, I'm like, ah, I'm going to buy that. So yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I become a a full out like ammo buyer because I (laughs) will be asking them when I know. I think I didn't buy ammo for like five years. And now it's like, uh, if I see it on the shelf, it's going on with me. Yeah. I've become, I'm just like everyone else. If it's there, it's, I got to have it. Yeah, 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 hundred percent, man. Out of fear, <laughs> I was just—I was just at the be uh, able Black to Rifle Coffee Mothership in Salt Lake this summer. I was there. I was there for like almost two weeks working, and um, literally every day I went to a new gun shop after work, and like just drove around Salt Lake. I found three hundred short mags that I've been looking for at a Shields. Like, I—I'm doing it just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, got to. If you're, if you're, if 17 HMR is awesome, it's an awesome hunting round. Like, but, oh, anyway, that stuff's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, yeah. it's expensive. Um, and like 22, the there's, there's more variety of ammo. So like you can get 22 ammo that is more expensive than 17 HMR made to match specs, but it's going to be on a whole, like a more accurate, uh, 
ammunition than even the best 17. Um, just if you look at like SDs and velocities and even groups, um, the best 22 is the, the best 22 ammo is the best rimfire ammo. So you have that on the high end. Okay. And you have cheap ammunition, bucket of bullets, Remington stuff, which is back, I hear, which is awesome, that I can put in a rifle and put my five-year-old on it and he can knock little things down at 25 yards all day long, you know? Like, I don't want to sound like I'm a snob and I'm only into the European expensive stuff. Like, there's a place for the whole spectrum of rimfire ammo. Um, and what's nice about the 22 is that spectrum's much larger. It's not like the 17s are all basically like mid-price or expensive kind of hunting ammo. Like, yeah. I don't want to burn that up teaching a five-year-old or a 10-year-old how to shoot, frankly. Right. Uh, especially when I can get like a really accurate 22 rifle for, you know, 500 bucks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I encourage people to check out the book, Rimfire Revolution, the uh, complete, a complete guide to modern 22 rifles. Uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, Michael, if folks want to follow along in your journey, actually, why don't you tell us what you're doing now with Black Rifle Coffee too, real quick. Yeah, 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 right on. Um, so I I work for Black Rifle Coffee, and they started um, an outdoor project called Free Range American. Um, uh -huh. My background, like prior to this job, I've been at about a year now, a little over a year now, is I was a an outdoor writer. So I freelanced for 10 plus years. Most of my work showed up in Field and Stream. I was an editor at large at Field and Stream. So Black Rifle Coffee decided that they wanted to spin up an outdoor kind of media brand. So we're very new. It's freerangeamerican.us. Um, I think we're doing awesome stuff. We're out there. We're filming hunts. We have a great like crew of guys that we're building up. We're putting daily content up on the website every day. Um, and so, yeah, that's been kind of my, my newest project sort of, sort of post book. Um, and it's been awesome because Black Rifle Coffee is a company that like fully supports hunting. Like I think nearly all the owners and like most of, <laughs> oh, not most, cause there's a lot of employees now, but a bunch of the employees have gone missing because it's elk season. <laughs> like there's yeah. something like 10 or 15 guys in the company who've like killed bulls this year. You Somebody know? sent me a message on Instagram the other day because I was, I, because like I said, black rifles, a new sponsor of the show. Um, and it was me, like we were talking about how we're making them in the, what is this yeah. called? The Chemex, Chemex. The coffee. Yeah, yeah. It's a brand new deal for me. It was like eye opening, but um, he was like, you know, Black Rifle donates money to anti-hunting, anti-gun groups. And I was like, you know what? I don't even have to research that because you're full of shit. <laughs> Where whoever you told whoever told you that, uh, no, they don't. You know, like literally the name is Black Rifle Coffee, and the logo is an SBR. And like dumbasses on Twitter are gonna come at us and say we're like some secret, like anti-Second Amendment group, you know. Like, right. They're paying my fucking mortgage. And I just wrote a book about guns <laughs> trying to get all of America into rifles. You know, yep. it's so it just it's Internet culture, you know, and like there's just fucking 
nonsense to it. Um, a lot of guys in the company got behind Tulsi Gabbard. You know, Joe Rogan got behind her, like technically a Democrat, but like they're literally paying employees uh, to go on guided elk hunts. Literally, we have a shooting team, you know, like we have Jersey guys who are at shooting matches. How do I get invited as a guest to go on one of these deals? Let me tell you. Yeah, man, we got to, uh, we'll get you out there, get you to the ranch. Uh, it's outside of uh, San Antonio, you know, there's shooting complex and like, it's, it's rad. We'll get you down there and, and uh, hang out with the guys and shoot rifles. Yeah. I think you can shoot out to like 1200 yards there. Um, well, shot archery there to date. Yeah. Well, I'll, you'll have to give me a little instruction on that. I think the farthest I've ever rang steel out was like 900. So, yeah, but uh, that'd be fun. Yeah, man, we can we can do it. Uh, your social media stuff so folks can follow you. Yes, sir. At uh, Michael Arche at Michael Arche. Uh -huh. Yep. And, and uh, I'm sure Michael they can Arche on Facebook and um, the book is sold everywhere. Like uh, so it's on Amazon gundigeststore.com was the least expensive place to get it for a while. Um, it's gonna, I'm, I'm told it's in Barnes and Nobles. Um, I haven't seen photos of that yet. So like, if you're listening and you see the book at Barnes and Noble, like send me a picture, please. <laughs> excited to see that, but I, right. I haven't found it yet. Um, right on. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, man. And awesome. certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, dude. It's always fun to catch up. I'm glad we did this. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon, I'm sure. Yes, sir. So there he goes, Michael Arche. Uh, check out the book, Rimfire Revolution. Awesome stuff today from Michael. Uh, that segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Check out the 600-pound stand and fill. Why is it called a stand and fill? Because you don't need a ladder. You don't have to back your truck up next to the feeder. You just stand on your own two feet God gave you and fill up the feeder. It's that easy. It's the stand and fill. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks to you guys and gals, especially for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. But all the smoke and the neon keep his pain here. Oh, nobody knows. Honky tonk.